Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Think Wildlife podcast. Today we have Bindu Raghwan. She is the principal scientist of Center of Wildlife Studies, and she focuses mostly on wildlife and animal disease ecology and one health. Welcome, Dr. Bindu, and thank you for your time. Thank you, thank you for inviting me, Anish. So what? Uh... So let us start by talking about your career in wildlife disease and ecology. So what got you interested in this field and why? when i was a kid i was always very interested in working with wild animals and i just wanted to work or uh, you know be in close proximity to wild animals but in 1980s in delhi when i grew up the only avenue that was open for that seemed to be you know working in a zoo so i decided to become a vet and work with wildlife in zoos uh and then uh when i had enrolled in the my veterinary course i discovered the masters course in wildlife biology at the wildlife institute of india and then i decided that okay i will pursue that to work with wild animals in the wild itself instead of working with wild animals in the zoo so after my graduation in veterinary science i worked for about a year and then i appeared for the entrance exam at wildlife institute of india and joined the masters course and then during my masters work i worked in ladakh and after that for about 10 years i worked in ladakh and during my time there i was approached by the department of wildlife and the animal husbandry department to look into some disease issues in the wild sheep and goat there because i was a vet and then that started my interest in wildlife diseases and wildlife health basically what are some challenges you faced along the way so one of the biggest challenges when i started was that literally nobody in india was looking at wildlife diseases right it was still a very nascent field very young field uh, in fact nobody really was interested in it as such uh, people were mostly doing parasitic diseases or looking at stress as a factor of health which is still what is going but there have been no studies in the actual ecology of diseases in wildlife so so i had to try and find phd positions abroad and that was quite challenging because you know finding uh, studentships and fellowships and the right positions abroad and um so that that was one of the biggest issues that i faced along the way and the other biggest issue you face when you work with wildlife disease is because for disease studies you have to handle wildlife okay and uh, so which in india you don't get permissions for you as you might know it's very difficult to get permissions to tranquilize animals to dart animals to collect samples and things like that so uh, at least in those days nowadays there's a lot of trapping happening for radio coloring and other studies but in those days it was very very rare unusual in fact so yeah currently what does your research primarily revolve around so nowadays uh, there are two main lines of research that i follow one is solely related to wildlife diseases and health and the other is where it intersects with human health and livestock health which what i like to call as community health because it's the community of humans their livestock and wildlife that live around most of the protected areas um and those studies come under the you know larger aspect of one health the framework of one health uh, but we look more into the zoonotic diseases aspect only and under wildlife diseases in health i am more interested in looking at how disease impacts populations of wildlife and how uh, it drives wildlife populations literally and what is the uh, uh, you know 
how disease moves in a population. So those are the main areas of research that I have currently. So you are also the principal scientist at uh, CWS. Talk about your work there, uh, especially with the wildlife disease and community health program. Okay, so at CWS, as principal scientist, one of the major uh, duties that I have, of course, is research. But apart from research, there's also the uh, administrative aspects since I'm part of the senior leadership. And in that, most of our time goes into raising funds for our projects and making sure our projects on the ground are running smoothly and guiding our junior colleagues uh, and things like that. And in terms of research, like I told you, I already uh, have you know, talked about the two main lines of interest in, our, in my research. And with that, currently, I handle two main projects. One is called the Murumalai Community Health Project, where we are trying to understand how uh, local people perceive, um, you know, disease in themselves, in, hum- in livestock and in wildlife, what their attitudes are to these kind of diseases and, you know, what, how much awareness do they have about zoonotic diseases and uh, how they perceive themselves when in terms of the biodiversity that they live with. And the second project that I'm involved in is a vulture conservation program in the Nilgiri's Biosphere Reserve. Maybe we're trying to look at vulture ecology um, and also threats to vulture populations in the region. Apart from all this, I'm also program head for uh, a public health and safety outreach program at CWS known as Wild Suraksha. It's one of our uh, very popular outreach programs uh, started by Dr. Kriti Karanth, our executive director. Um, and this program uh, is basically a, a series of workshops that we conduct with people who live in and around our protected areas uh, in the Western Ghats and teach them about, uh, you know, human wildlife conflict uh, encounters, how to avoid those, what to do when you encounter wildlife, what are zoonotic diseases and how to avoid those. Uh, basic first aid in case they do have uh, any conflict with wildlife, snake bites, uh, and things like that. So, yeah, this is my main job at CWS. You mentioned that you are working on vulture ecology. So, could, could you just talk about why vultures are so important for the health of both wildlife and uh, public health? So, I won't say vultures are important to the health of wildlife and public health per se, but vultures are very, they play a very important role, right? I mean, and in school, all of us have studied about the food web and the trophic, uh, you know, cascade. And we know that scavengers play a very important role uh, in that trophic cascade, in that food web, just as carnivores and herbivores do, right? And scavengers, their main uh, role in that entire cascade is to make sure that organic nutrients, especially carbon, is recycled back into the environment, right? When animals die or you know, uh, all of that matter is converted back into energy that goes back into the environment and is recycled as nutrients for uh, other purposes. And uh, vultures especially are very important because they literally pick a carcass clean down to the bone and sometimes even utilize the bone. So that kind of a very uh, complete cleaning service, so to say, is not provided by many other scavengers, right? So it takes a whole community of scavengers to actually break down a carcass, whereas with vultures, uh, just a group of vultures can do that within hours. And uh, thirdly, vultures 
have this amazing uh, metabolism where they are able to uh, i would like to say inactivate in a, in so to say many of the pathogens that are found uh, you know in these carcasses so for example if a carcass is of a diseased animal and vultures are eating that carcass uh, they are able to somehow the digestive system allows them to literally kill or inactivate the pathogens that are found in that diseased carcass and so uh you know that pathogen is now removed from the environment and they leave the environment clean so they play a big role uh, in pathogen removal from the environment and thus they play a big role in keeping our environment clean our forests clean for both humans and wildlife so that is one of the most important roles so uh, india has lost about uh, 95% of her vulture population since 1990s so uh, what caused this decimation and what have been the ecological implications of this right so um, one of the most important or biggest cause for vulture declines in india and across southeast asia actually uh, and also in africa was the use of uh, non steroidal anti inflammatory drugs in veterinary practice especially Uh, these include diclofenac which is the most popular uh, non steroidal anti inflammatory drug or nsaid as we call them and this drug is very commonly used by most veterinarians or was very commonly used by most veterinarians to treat uh, you know pain and any kind of disease in uh, animals so it is a kind of an antipyretic and uh, anti inflammatory that they were using so if an animal is sick the first injection that they give is diclofenac and it's a really a wonder drug because it makes the animal feel good uh within a few hours and you know it looks like a kind of a magic bullet but the problem with that drug is that um it does get you know removed from the system very quickly in animals but uh it's mostly used a lot in animals that are literally on the last leg uh as a last ditch effort to you know uh, keep the animal alive and when the animal dies it is not able to uh the diclofenac is not able to get out of the system so the carcass literally has diclofenac in it and then when the vultures were eating this carcass this diclofenac would get into their systems and diclofenac causes um a kind condition called gout in uh, the vultures where you know the uh, they were literally forming crystals in the kidneys uh, in uh, the vultures and this was blocking their uh, Uh, uh urinary uh, the excretory system and then this was causing a lot of uh, metabolic uh, issues within the vultures leading to their death you know and this death would happen very quickly It didn't take very long for the diclofenac to get built up into their uh, systems and that led to this very drastic decline uh, over less than a decade in india and across southeast asia uh so that was one of the major causes of of course in certain pockets uh, there are other causes also like you know power lines or uh, uh, wind turbines or getting poisoned by people who you know don't want vultures around their fields farmers who sometimes put out poisoned carcasses uh, so to avoid vultures coming to their area and things like that but those are much smaller causes for uh, vulture declines compared to diclofenac and now populations across most of india have crashed of course the government had uh, put a ban on the veterinary use of uh, diclofenac in 2006 so after that uh, diclofenac use has come down but it's still very much 
uh, utilized. And then there are other NSAIDs like nimesulides and uh, you know some uh, ibuprofen and other drugs that also do the same damage to vultures. Um, and so it has been very difficult to get people to understand that, uh, you know, maybe not use any of these drugs. There are certain safe drugs such as meloxicam that people can use uh, and getting veterinarians and getting people in the field to change their habits uh, has been the challenge. Teclofenac and NSAIDs are also typically very cheap and easy to get. Uh, so a lot of, uh, you know, non-veterinarians, people who are, so to say, quacks in the field do use that a lot to get these immediate magic bullet results. And that has uh, that is still leading to vulture deaths uh, across India. Related to the vulture crisis is the feral dog menace. So, could you just explain why uh, feral dogs are so related to the vulture crisis? Is the menace of feral dogs? So, could you just explain how that is really, how feral dogs are a threat to uh, not only wildlife but wildlife health as well? Um, yes. So. One of the uh, fallouts of the vulture declines was that because now uh, they as the top scavengers were removed from the system, uh, these other smaller scavengers such as black kites and uh, feral dogs started uh, you know, now scavenging on these carcasses and scavenging on what normally vultures would have removed from the ecosystem. And that led to an explosion of population in the black kites and uh, wild pigs and feral dogs uh, in many areas. Apart from this, uh, feral dog populations have anyways been increasing a lot because of our increasing populations, especially in peri-urban areas where we have been uh, dumping our garbage and you know our household wastes uh, outside uh, in the outskirts of peri-urban areas. And dogs have just been scavenging there um, and increasing in their populations. So that has, that has also led to increase in feral dog populations. And the problem when that happens next to protected areas or areas where wildlife lives is that uh, these feral dogs, obviously they are carnivores and they start then attacking uh, or predating on wildlife, including fawns of cheetah and you know, uh, smaller animals. And uh, uh, so that has really not just harmed the wildlife per se, the, the, their prey, but also the other, con the wild carnivores who were dependent on these prey. So that's literally in direct competition with the wild carnivores. Apart from that, their very presence in these areas is a deterrent for other wild carnivores okay, because dogs literally roam in packs and that makes the wild carnivores stay away. So that again impacts wild carnivores and their predation on wild wildlife. Thirdly, wild dogs, because they interact with both humans and other domestic animals and they interact with wildlife, they are great uh, carriers for diseases between these two groups. So typically diseases, you know, that might be found in uh, humans and the domestic animals would not find a way to go into wildlife because they live in different areas. But because dogs are these, you know, uh, perfect uh, movement uh, corridors between uh, human areas and wildlife areas. So they act uh, potentially as great carriers for these diseases uh, and potentially also zoonotic diseases. And so that is a threat again to wildlife health as well as to wildlife populations. 
feral dogs. So, uh, most feral dogs in India are known to be carriers of rabies, uh, as are all warm-blooded or, uh, animals, but uh, more so the wild dogs, I mean feral dogs. So um, when, you know, uh, dogs get into packs and then they become fearless and they start attacking anybody, including humans, uh, and they become aggressive and that uh, can lead to the spread of rabies, which is a very big issue in India. So 96% cases of rabies in India are uh, caused by bites from feral dogs. So that's another threat that comes from feral dogs. So I think the topic of rabies is very pertinent because we're still in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. COVID-19 pandemic also brought in the shocking realities of the illegal wildlife trade. So uh, from the last few years, uh, what, is this, what are some key lessons we can take away from COVID-19 pertaining to zoonotic diseases? So I think, um, see, for the scientists, actually, this had been, we had been, most scientists have been predicting uh, a pandemic like the COVID-19 since 2004, as early as that. Okay. But uh, people didn't want to listen because it's very inconvenient, right? Don't, they don't want to inconvenience their lives. Governments were prioritizing other things. They still are prioritizing other things. But to scientists, this was not a surprise. So really, there's nothing much in terms of zoonotic disease that we've learned, except the fact that, uh, you know, there is an urgency now to deal with zoonotic diseases. In terms of the larger population, I think uh, what COVID-19 has done is told us, made us all aware of what zoonotic diseases are. Because before that, most common people did not know what zoonotic diseases were and that and, you know, diseases could get transferred between humans and animals, and especially from wild animals. So now most people know about that. Uh, and now governments have also realized that you know, uh, there, this inter interface between wildlife and humans uh, can lead to severe consequences for either side. Unfortunately, what has happened is public memory is very short. And once COVID-19, now that COVID, you know, you can see how people have stopped wearing masks, nobody cares. Uh, once the, you know, situation normalizes, people tend to forget what happened and they get back to life as normal. And that is one of the biggest challenges we've had. So while we have had a lot of interest in treatment and vaccinations and things like that, we still do not have much interest from governments and from uh, people in surveillance and monitoring for zoonotic diseases, especially when it comes to zoonotic diseases, which have an origin in wildlife. So for example, in India, we still do not have a program that is going out and actively monitoring or survey, uh, surveying for these diseases in wildlife. And that's still very far away for us. So that is one of the lessons that I think we need to learn is that we need to be more proactive in our surveillance methods for diseases, not just in wildlife, but also livestock and humans. We need to work together uh, in terms of the human health, wildlife health and livestock health sectors. Uh, and we need to take a more ecosystem approach rather than a you know, individual departmental approach to handling uh, health and well-being issues uh, in the three groups. So that's literally what One Health talks about. Uh, although One Health encompasses a much larger scope of, you know, uh, 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 areas under uh, health and well-being. And One Health still is very much focused more on human health and well-being. So I think that needs to change. It has to be more about I would say planetary health or ecosystem health 
because it it should lay equal emphasis on the health of animals because that's where things are preventable we cannot uh, it's very difficult to control human behavior as we have seen in the covid pandemic whereas uh, with the with animals um, and especially with livestock it is much easier to uh, identify Uh, to prevent and to control diseases so i think that's where we should be putting most of our attention and then of course once we take care of livestock uh, you know a lot of the wildlife uh, interface also gets taken care of the other thing is of course protecting our biodiversity protecting our forests and making sure that we do not uh, you know encroach upon of uh, wild areas anymore we don't encroach upon wildlife habitats anymore because the minute we do that the wildlife have no other place except to come out into human dominated areas and that's where the interface between humans and wildlife increases and then that's the area where spillover of disease occurs right so if we if we avoid that interface then we also avoid the spillover so so i always like to think of wildlife and forest uh, of na- of the natural habitats as uh, a kind of um uh, what do you say a kind of uh, as a of a sink for all of the diseases the zoonotic disease and uh, you know and it's kind of like a pandora's box uh, that has held everything bad within it and the moment we go and interfere with these natural areas we are opening that pandora's box and allowing all of these diseases to come out and affect us so oh, one more zoonotic disease which uh, is prevalent currently is the monkeypox uh, disease so what exactly is this disease and where does it originate from so monkeypox disease is actually a disease caused by a virus which is very similar to smallpox and um, it's it actually originated from africa and spread from monkeys to humans uh, and for a long time it was just confined to certain pockets of africa where monkeys and humans were in close contact but because of the increase in travel and you know people moving to different parts of the world uh, this uh, disease has now uh, started to spread across the world and it first started to spread to the us to europe to the western countries and from there it has come into asia and you know other parts of the world and um, so mainly it is spread through initially in the initial times it was spread from contact between monkeys and humans uh, but nowadays it can be spread from uh, humans to humans through through close contact uh, and by sharing objects that a person with monkeypox uh, has used like you know if they've touched something or if they've used a clothing towel and things like that so and it is also sexually transmissible so that's another way that it can be spread um so yes so what are some other zoonotic diseases which you think might become problematic in the future or are already already uh, a matter of concern correct so thing is like there is a lot of noise around many of these diseases like uh, the coronaviruses uh, monkeypox uh, you know um uh, uh influenza the problem is that uh, most of these viral diseases are they occur as epidemics okay they'll come and then they go um and uh, many of them are actually vaccine treatable also 
viruses are very fragile organisms, as you might know. And so many of these diseases are easily preventable by, say, simple things like washing hands, disinfection, you know, wearing a mask, things like that. The more dangerous zoonotic diseases are the bacterial ones and the fungal ones. Because these diseases, these organisms, bacteria and fungi, are very um, resistant to many of our preventive measures, including, you know, what we do for viruses. So those diseases, I think, are the ones that we really need to be worried about. These have been around for a long time, diseases like anthrax, diseases like tuberculosis, uh, uh, you know, and there are many other zoonotic diseases that are important in different parts of the world, leptospirosis. So these diseases cause immense amount of illness and death every year across the globe. And we just do not pay enough attention to them because they're not, you know, uh, sensational. They don't come as epidemics and create a havoc and then go and disappear. But they've always been around for centuries. Now, anthrax is one of the oldest diseases known to man. And it is a zoonotic, completely zoonotic disease. So, you know, we've just got used to this and we don't pay attention. But these are the diseases that cause one of the most amount of damage and continue to do so. And so those, I think, are what we really need to be worried about. Of course, we also need to look at viral diseases. And like I said, many of the viral diseases occur because we've suddenly, you know, in encroached into wildlife areas or we're having more interface with wildlife, human interface with wildlife, or even livestock interface with wildlife. So avoiding those will help us avoid a lot of the viral diseases uh, that are now encroaching. So you mentioned the tuberculosis. So... Recently, there's been a lot of noise about how captive elephants can transfer tuberculosis to their mahouts. There have been a few studies in uh, so I think Thailand and even Ajmer Fort. So uh, could you just explain how, uh, the role of the illegal wildlife trade and captive animals in the, the spread of zoonotic diseases? So that's absolutely wrong. Captive elephants do not pass on tuberculosis to their mahouts. It's the other way around. It's called reverse zoonosis. And uh, uh, tuberculosis in captive elephants is one of the best examples of reverse zoonosis. So uh, elephants did not have tuberculosis, especially tuberculosis caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis um, and also mycobacterium bovis. Both of these organisms were not typically found in elephants and they have come in either from livestock or through humans. For captive elephants, this has come in through mahouts. A lot of mahouts, uh, you know, live in poverty and under conditions which are not conducive for health. And they, many of them suffer from tuberculosis. And so when they go in uh, close proximity to the elephants, they have passed on this disease to the elephants. So a lot of captive elephants now across the globe have been affected by uh, tuberculosis, including in India. And so uh, this is a very good example of how humans have affected wildlife. It's not just from wildlife to humans, but also from humans to wildlife that uh, zoonotic diseases can be transferred. And another good example is that recently scientists found, uh, you know, there are, there are these bacteria which are called drug-resistant bacteria because they're resistant to many of the uh, antibiotics that we use now. And scientists have recently found these drug-resistant bacteria in penguins in the end. And the only way this could have reached them is through humans or through our uh, wastes reaching uh, the penguins. So that's another potential reverse zoonosis that we are seeing. And there are many other cases like this. So all in all, like I said, 
whichever way the zoonosis is being transmitted the point is that we need to make sure that wildlife areas are sacred that we do not encroach upon them that we do not uh, you know harm wildlife populations that we do not try to um, encroach into their habitats or destroy their habitats in any way uh, forcing them to come out into human dominated areas and we definitely need to be more mindful of how we live and where we live uh, our populations expanding every day and there is only so much space that we have for everybody so we have to be mindful of our population of the way we use consume um of course wildlife uh, illegal trade and uh, poaching of wildlife is a very big issue um but in reality that is a very small uh, fraction of uh, interface from where zoonotic diseases come in uh, nipah is a very good example there is no wildlife trade involved in nipah virus uh, transmission or in avian influenza or uh, you know h5n1 influenza transmission Uh, but it happens just because wildlife have been forced to move into areas where humans and their livestock live and from there it has jumped into humans right so uh, main thing is to uh, make sure that we do not um, impact wildlife and their habitats anymore that is a very interesting point so my uh, final question for you for uh, what would you, your advice be for people who want to enter the wildlife health field uh my advice would be please do uh take this work up there are very few people out there who are actually looking at wildlife disease uh most people in india are who are working on wildlife health are either looking at uh, you know wildlife medicine which involves treating and uh you know uh, working with injured wildlife which is great uh but we also need people to actively work on how diseases affect wildlife populations how diseases impact wildlife because uh each species of animal is different and each pathogen behaves very differently in different species so we know we have a lot of information uh, on diseases from humans and livestock but we do not know how these diseases impact uh, affect wildlife right so i'll give you a very good example during my phd i was working on Uh, pneumonia in bighorn sheep which are these wild sheep that are found in the us and uh, what we found was that uh, these wild sheep were never exposed to the bacteria that were causing pneumonia in them these bacteria came into the wild sheep from contact with domestic sheep and the same bacteria do not cause any harm in the domestic sheep at all but the minute they move into wild sheep they cause instant death like it's 100% fatal almost so you know that that's the kind of change that the same pathogens can have between different species and these are still belonging to the same uh, genera ovis genera but different species right so we need people to look into this to understand how disease affects different wildlife and how it might impact populations of this wildlife uh, and that how in turn that would affect uh, health of the community as a whole that's living in that region so i would advise youngsters to definitely go ahead with this um and if anybody is interested they can reach out to me and uh, uh, for help on how to go about pursuing a career in this field and uh, please please do go ahead and welcome to approach me for that thanks thank you so much for your time is nice listening to you yeah thank you anish thank you for giving me this opportunity